You and your dog are a team. Fuel is best in the field and in life with Purina Pro Plan Sport. Made for hardworking dogs of all ages, every sport formula starts with real meat as the number one ingredient and is specifically formulated to support strength and stamina. Try it today and see why ProPlan is the official dog food of Ducks Unlimited. Learn more at ProPlanSport.com. Welcome to the Ducks Unlimited podcast, the only podcast about all things waterfowl. From hunting insights to science-based discussions about ducks, geese, and issues affecting waterfowl and wetlands conservation in North America, we bring the resource to you. The DU Podcast with your host, Dr. Mike Brazier. A couple of weeks ago, we released an episode in which we talked about the drought that has gripped the Pacific Flyway. And in that episode, we made reference to a future episode or actually a couple of future episodes in which we would dive into a bit more detail on certain regions that are being affected out there. Today is the first of those episodes, and our focus will be on the Central Valley of California. Joining me for this discussion is Virginia Getz, Director of Conservation Programs for Ducks Unlimited for the states of California, Nevada, Hawaii, and Arizona. Virginia, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Good morning. It's great to be with you and talk with you as we were preparing for this uh, you and I have, we discussed that you and I have both been with Ducks Unlimited for quite some time. I'm going to have, give you an opportunity to talk in more detail about your background, but uh, both of us are approaching, you're, you're actually over 20 years with DU, I'm approaching 20 years with DU, and you and I have not had much of an opportunity to interact together um, closely over the years, which is a bit odd given kind of the roles that we have played and where we have the type of information that we typically work on. So it is great to finally connect with you and talk with you. Uh, wish we, I wish we had a more upbeat topic, but such is the case that you're going to be bringing some great information to help us understand what's happening out there in the Central Valley. So thank you. And to, to get started here, let's do that, give you an opportunity to provide a bit on your professional and personal background, how you came to Ducks Unlimited and what you do for us right now. Yeah, well, I came to Ducks Unlimited um, in 2000. You know, my background, I'm a wildlife biologist by education and training. Um, you know, before I came here, I did a variety of jobs like most biologists, do, you know, do. I worked for Forest Service, for a private utility company, uh, for Fish and Wildlife Service, et cetera. And I was in private consulting um, here in the California Central Valley for a good many years. And, you know, I always... I had been a longtime member and supporter of Ducks Unlimited, really had a great deal of respect for the organization. And I, you know, I was at a point in my career and in my life where I really kind of wanted to get back to, uh, you know, a job that was totally focused on the resource, not so much process, but focused on the resource. But I never figured there would be that kind of an opportunity. You know, I mean, I remember talking to people I worked with and they said, well, if you ever left, you know, Jones and Stokes Associates, the company I work for, what would be your dream job? Where, where would you go? And I said, well, I'd love to work for Ducks Unlimited. Oh, but that'll never happen. I thought, you know, I was a native Californian and, uh, you know, I really liked it out here and always thought, you know, anything that opened up with Ducks Unlimited would probably be, you know, back east or in the south. And I didn't really want to leave California, you know, lo and behold, 
a regional biologist position opened up out here, and it was in the Intermountain West, um, you know, which included some of the areas in Northeast California and Southern Oregon, where I'd spent a good deal of time in my life, you know, hunting and recreating. So I had a lot of passion for that area. But, you know, that's how it all started. I left a, a very good career in consulting and came to an even better career at Dex Unlimited. And so it sounds like you've worked in a number of different positions and locations out in the Western U.S. for us. Give people an idea of the of the type of work that you do. You recently um, accepted a position as director of conservation programs. I, I forget exactly what position you were in prior to that, but give people an idea of the type of work that that you do. Like because that's one of the things that we want people to hear about through this podcast is the voices of our Ducks Unlimited employees, our biologists, are the people that deliver the habitat. That, that make these decisions and try to provide a better future for wetlands conservation and for waterfowl and waterfowl hunters and all that enjoy it. So give people an idea of, of what you do, what a, the, a day in the life of a director of conservation programs or even the position that you held prior to that. Yeah, and prior, prior to that, I was the manager of conservation programs. So I've kind of worked my way through the system here. I started out as a regional biologist in the Intermountain West. And at the time I was um, in that position, I covered uh, Intermountain West part of California, uh, Western Nevada, Southern Oregon, New Mexico, Arizona. So I had a huge region. Um, I basically was on the road all the time. Though maybe five years into that, I uh, switched over to the Sacramento Valley, a regional biologist position open there. Um, I switched over to the Sacramento Valley, you know, then went into the manager of conservation programs, first overseeing the Sacramento Valley and Intermountain West, you know, which was an area I was really familiar with. And, you know, then prior to taking my current job overseeing all five of our conservation areas out here. Now, as the director of conservation programs, I really oversee the development and delivery of our conservation work in that four-state area, you know, and directly supervise our team of biologists. You know, we have eight biologists here um, that report to me, and they work on um, conservation issues and projects, um, you know, in five areas. We're organized geographically. Um, San Francisco Bay and Coast, the San Joaquin Sacramento Delta, the Sacramento Valley, the San Joaquin Valley, and the Intermountain West. And of course, those areas are tied to the key areas on the landscape for waterfowl. And so those regional biologists that you mentioned, they're the ones that do, and, and that you were in the position of before, that do the legwork in terms of going out and finding opportunities to do wetland restoration, wetland enhancement activities. And and so the, I guess the other, if I were to try to piece together the other part of the organization that people are most familiar with is our, our fundraising. Those are the folks that are really out there doing the legwork to help us raise funds to uh, to provide the, the money and help find the money to do to do wetland restoration work. And then our regional biologists are the ones that are actually out there on the ground, working with landowners, working with public and federal agencies to identify opportunities to enhance, restore, protect wetlands. And then now in your position as director, you you get to kind of see things from a higher level and help influence priorities and and uh, direct some of those resources. So that's pretty cool. And I know you're great at it. I know people speak very highly of you and your knowledge and the skills that you bring to Ducks Unlimited. So uh, thanks for, for all of that and and the wealth of experience that you're going to bring to this conversation. And, and I'll probably transition here at this point and just ask you, as we start to talk about the Central Valley, eventually we're going to get into some of the details on 
what the drought that's unfolding is going to mean specifically as we understand it for the Central Valley of California. It is one of Ducks Unlimited's highest priorities. It is one of the most important areas for wintering waterfowl in North America. It has been for uh, for as long as we have been an organization, as long as wetlands have been across the landscape here in North America. But having, with your length of time having worked in the Central Valley, I want you to introduce the Central Valley of California to our listeners that may not be familiar with it. Talk about the, its importance to waterfowl. Talk about the, the, the sort of the changes from a historical perspective of what we've seen with regard to the loss of wetlands and the type of wetlands that we have now, subregions within that geography. Introduce us to the Central Valley of California. Well, the Central Valley really consists of three major regions, the Sacramento Valley in the north, the Sacramento-San Joaquin River Delta and Sassoon Marsh, which is in the middle, and then the San Joaquin Valley in the south. This area supports extensive agriculture. Um, it helps make the state of California the sixth largest economy in the world. Um, the Central Valley alone provides 8% of the U.S.'s agricultural output by value and 25% of the nation's food. So it's just a a huge agricultural landscape. Um, Collectively, that Central Valley area is composed of nine major drainage basins. And those basins are the basic units around which conservation planning is conducted and the -the on-the-ground conservation work is implemented. A heavily impacted landscape. 95% of the wetland habitat that historically occurred here has been lost primarily to development and conversion to agriculture. Um, Waterfowl populations are now heavily dependent on agricultural lands, primarily rice, and to a much lesser extent corn. Um, The waterfowl habitats in the Sacramento Valley uh, region consist primarily of managed wetlands and rice lands. In the Delta region, they consist primarily of managed wetlands and some corn. And in the San Joaquin Valley region, consists almost exclusively of managed wetlands. There's a lot of agriculture in the San Joaquin Valley, but very little of it is waterfowl friendly. Um, in the Delta region, the remaining pasture ground out there also provides some real important late winter goose foraging habitat. Um, in a typical non-drought year, the habitat base for waterfowl in the Central Valley as a whole consists mainly of about 205,000 acres of managed wetlands and 540,000 acres of rice lands. And about 63% or 340,000 acres of those rice lands are typically flooded in the fall and winter after harvest for rice straw decomposition. But that flooding provides an important habitat base for wintering waterfowl. Virginia, I want to back up a bit and ask you a question sort of about the historical historical picture of wetlands in the Central Valley. As you understand it, like if we were to roll back the clock before some of the, the wetland drainage that you that you spoke about, what would we see in terms of the type of wetlands that are that stretch throughout the Central Valley? What's their seasonality and um, and, and yeah, what are the resources that they, what are the type of habitats that they would have provided to waterfowl during winter? Yeah, well, you, you would have had massive marshes. You know, if you look at the rice on the landscape in the Sacramento Valley, those are heavy clay soils, you know, that typically grow rice. So the areas that are growing rice historically would have supported wetlands, you know, and they would have been more seasonal on the higher ground and in the lower basins, like down in the Calusa Trough and up against Gilsizer Slough. Um, you would have had 
massive marshes, you know, with deeper and permanent water habitat. Some of the areas, you know, now where we have managed seasonal wetlands, like on the west side of the valley, those were, you know, seasonal alkali playa um, type of wetlands, alkali plains. And then in terms of any any type of overbank river flooding, would that have been more common in the spring due to snow melt? Or I guess you would have had that in the winter as well, right? Late, yeah, late late winter and, and spring, definitely. And, and, you know, when you look at the Central Valley, you know, I mentioned it's a, it's a heavily developed agricultural area. It's a heavily manipulated landscape from a from a water standpoint, you know, in order to be able to support that agricultural economy, huge changes were made on the landscape to sort of corral that flooding and channelize those rivers and get them under control so that they could have land that people could live on and that they could farm. And so, yeah, there would be, you know, overbank flooding that would have spread, you know, made huge floodplains and spread the water out on the landscape on pretty much an annual basis. You know, Sacramento River and Feather River are two of the major river systems systems in, in the North Valley, San Joaquin River in the South, and those all would have been subject to overbank flooding and, and you know, those revitalizing flows. As you mentioned, we've seen throughout this, in this particular landscape, uh, a, t- a tremendous amount of conversion, drainage of those historical wetlands. And the other thing that shapes our our conversation, some of our activities there in the central or in California, I guess, is the fact that it is heavily, heavily populated state. Uh, is, is it, is California, where does it rank in terms of the most populous states in the, in the U.S.? I should know that. It's got to be near the top, if not the top. It's got to be near the top. It may be the number one state. I mean, I'm thinking about some very, ur- you know, urban areas. Uh, you know, I don't know what our density is compared to places like New York with high populations, but we got a lot of people here. I mean, we we have a population in the Central Valley alone that's like five and a half million people, and that's not even in the major urban areas like the San Francisco Bay Area in Los Angeles. This is in a fairly rural landscape. Well, I didn't realize that the population... Uh, was that was that high in the uh, in the Central Valley? I have spent some time there. People that have listened to previous episodes here will have heard me reference that. I was I worked out in the Central Valley down uh, the San Joaquin Valley, there at Los Banos WMA or whatever I think it's the yeah, the Los Banos WMA for a number of months and and certainly enjoyed my time there and got to sp- uh, traveled over to the coast and and it's a beautiful state and traveled up into some of the other forested areas and it, it's. But yeah, a lot of people too. And so that uh, that influences much of what we do and what we have to work with. One of the other things that it leads to, though, is a pretty substantial membership base for Ducks Unlimited, a pretty substantial hunter base, waterfowl hunter base. Do you have, uh, I should have looked this up before, Virginia, do you have an idea of the number of hunters that we have uh, typically in California? Yeah, we have about... 51,400, these are waterfowl hunters in California, and that ranks fourth among U.S. states, which in some ways is a little surprising because I think most people's perception of California, you don't necessarily think, you know, of waterfowl, one of the most popular waterfowl hunting areas. Obviously, we have a lot of people here, and that number of hunters makes up a very small proportion of our total population. You know, but the the duck harvest, the total duck harvest in California is the highest of the U.S. states. Yeah, it's always up there. Uh, We've was talking to somebody about this. Well, actually, it was Chris Jennings on a previous episode. I asked him to to take a guess at, 
I guess maybe, maybe we were talking about green wing teal. Took take a guess at which state is responsible for the the highest green wing teal harvest annually. And California is always right up there at the at the top. Chris guessed Utah. I don't know what he was thinking. He guessed Utah. No, okay. <laughs> Texas and California. But yeah, if you spend any time down in Los Banos in the San Joaquin Valley, San Joaquin Valley is green wing teal country. Let me ask you this question. I, I couldn't remember exactly on that episode. There's one county in the Central Valley that is disproportionately responsible for that green wing teal harvest. Is it Merced County? It's Would that, Merced. Okay. Yeah. Merced County. All right. Well, that was all right. And so in Chris's defense, he realized after he said that, he's like, I mean, that's, you, you never answer Utah. Like there's a lot of ducks there, but the hunting pressure yeah. there is just not, it's just not w- the way it is when we're in some of the other states and we're talking about harvest here. So, uh, but anyway, so on that same thread of hunting, there is a strong mix, as you introduced, the rice ground, rice have flooded, winter flooded rice is a very important habitat type for waterfowl during winter. And that's going to be all privately owned land. And a lot of the managed duck clubs that you talked about are also going to be privately owned. So there's a pretty substantial private land base that's important for waterfowl, waterfowl habitat. But there's also some very key public ground, public land areas that uh, that support ducks, that support hunters. Give people, maybe identify a couple of those, some of the more notable examples that people may have heard about in the Sacramento and San Joaquin Valleys. Yeah, you mentioned Los Banos Wildlife Area. You know, that's a state wildlife area in the San Joaquin Valley. San Luis National Wildlife Refuge Complex is also down there in the San Joaquin. Um, You know, in the Delta, we have Grizzly Island, which is a state wildlife area, and some of the more popular areas in the Sacramento Valley, you know, are on the Sacramento National Wildlife Refuge Complex, Sacramento, Delavan, Calusa National Wildlife Refuges, and then, of course, the the highly popular Upper Butte Basin Wildlife Area, you know, with the Little Dry Creek Unit. Um, That's one of the most popular among hunters, but, you know, Public wetlands are out here are used extensively for hunting, and the demand for public hunting ground really exceeds the supply. One of the other things, Virginia, that flavors California and our consideration of wetland conservation activities and, and some of the way we approach it in the Central Valley is, and it's related to all these other things that we've already talked about, intensive agriculture, large population centers, just a large population in general. And the one thing that all of those need, as well as the waterfowl and other wetland-dependent wildlife in, in that area, the one thing that they need is water. And anyone that has spent any time in California knows that water, water conservation, water availability, water policy, water law, that that is something that is distinctively California and really the entire Western U.S. and and that is something that we definitely have to to uh, to navigate and be mindful of and be creative about. And so I guess just introduce that for for folks the complexities of water allocation. This is gonna this is gonna get into the some of the discussions about drought and how how some of this water allocation, some of the water complexities throughout California interact with an ongoing drought to further complicate and and just further, yeah, challenge us as we think about drought and its impacts on on waterfowl, wetlands, and a whole host of other things. So give people, I guess, a Cliff Notes versions of the degree of of water complexities there in in California. Yeah, well, well, people, agriculture, wildlife, and fish all compete for the limited water supply in California. You know, we're kind of in a desert, really. Um, Most of the water supply is in the north part of the state. 
but the bulk of the population and the political power is in the south part of the state. Increased competition for water is a major conservation issue in the Central Valley, and it's only growing in importance. Um, periodic drought cycles are normal for this state. And when water supplies are limited, like in the case of a drought, that competition for available water becomes even greater. We, ha we have a very complicated water rights system in California, but it's largely a functional system. Um, and it does help protect water rights for some wetland habitat. You know, in very overly simple terms, the water rights are prioritized based in part on when they were acquired. Three major tiers of water rights in the Central Valley are riparian, pre-1914 and post-1914 water rights. Um, the Central Valley is really a giant plumbing system, you know, with runoff from rainfall and snowmelt. It's collected in the upstream reservoirs, and then it's largely conveyed by various water districts to downstream users. And so, you know, this water right system obviously figures in on who gets the water and when they get it. Uh, water deliveries in the summer and the fall can be cut back or curtailed in drought years as a way to manage the water supply in the reservoirs um, until it can be replenished in the winter and the spring. Um, when that happens, there's impacts on water delivery to both wetlands and agricultural lands. And of course, the impacts are greater on those users that have the less senior water rights. And that's a great segue, Virginia, for a discussion about the drought that we're that we're in right now, which will be the, the focus of the remainder of, of our discussion here. And, and we're going to come back to some of the issues that you've just introduced there, water rights and seniority of those water rights and maybe even the availability of groundwater in some situations. Uh, so as we as we move forward here, let's talk drought. Let's uh, let's introduce people to the drought that's unfolding. And specifically with regard to the Central Valley, how how it compares to some sort of historical precedent, we've we spoke with Mark and Jeff, and they provided sort of a Pacific Flyway overview, so you can reference some of what they may have have mentioned if you'd like to. But just specifically for the Central Valley, introduce people to the drought that has been unfolding and that we are seeing right now uh, as, as it relates to the Central Valley. Yeah, as I mentioned, you know, periodic drought cycles are normal for the state. We are currently in the second year of a very severe drought. Um, more than, you know, you probably heard from Mark and Jeff, more than 88% of California is in extreme drought and over 46% of the state is in exceptional drought, which is the driest category you know, listed by the U.S. Drought Monitor. Most of the state's key fall staging and wintering areas for waterfowl are classified in one of those categories, and the Central Valley is in the worst category. It's in exceptional drought. Prior to this current drought, we went through a five-year drought that ended, ended in 2016. Um, conditions got progressively worse over that period, and they were at their worst, obviously, in the tail end of the drought in 2014 and 15. Um, in, in 2015, it seemed like we couldn't endure another year of drought. And fortunately, we didn't have to as the drought cycle broke in 2016, which was a real wet year. But I think what is particularly concerning regarding this current drought is that the water supply and the conditions seem worse now in only the second year of drought than they were in the fifth year of the previous drought. I encourage people to go back and listen to the episode that we had with Jeff McGreary and Mark Petrie, if you have not already done so, because it provides a great perspective on the connectivity of this 
the effects of the drought throughout this western region, throughout the Pacific Flyway. Uh, we're going to have a, a, a future episode, more detailed conversation about the Klamath Basin. But Mark and Jeff spoke about the also the um, the Great Salt Lake and the Klamath Basin as sort of two key pathways through which ducks come to the Central Valley. And and so one of the things that Mark and Jeff both noted is that this year, given the ongoing drought in those two regions, Klamath and and the Great Salt Lake, it's going to have some trickle down effects, so to speak, for the Central Valley, even even if there wasn't a, a concurrent drought occurring in the Central Valley. But the fact that you have one also occurring in the Central Valley and in the areas that provide the water resources for the Central Valley further complicates this scenario, or I guess say I guess I would say provides additional potential for some um, unusual and potentially adverse outcomes for for waterfowl. And so let's let's kind of tr- transition there and talk about as you understand it and as you are seeing it across the landscape, how are things shaping up with regard to the potential for wetland habitat, for wetlands to be available for waterfowl relative to maybe what we would normally see? Just give people an idea of what what it, the next few months looks like given where we are uh, with the drought. Well, the drought is going to mean a reduction in both wetland habitat and flooded flooded rice ground in the Central Valley this fall and winter. Um, water deliveries to the core wetland areas that have the best surface water rights, those have been reduced by 25%. And these are the areas with the best water rights. Um, reductions in water deliveries will be a lot higher in areas with less senior water rights. Many wetland managers are going to have to rely on groundwater to maintain their wetland habitat through the winter, even if they do receive surface water for their initial fall flood up. Um, The latest estimates developed um, in the latter part of August project that only uh, 42% of the managed wetlands in the Sacramento Valley will be flooded this winter. And what that translates to, it's that's an estimated about 35,720 acres flooded out of about 85,505 acres available. Um, you move down into the San Joaquin Valley region, an estimated 78% of managed wetlands will be flooded. Um, but flood up in some of those areas is going to be delayed until December as a way of conserving water. The situation's much better in the Delta Sassoon region with about 100% of the approximately 45,000 acres of wetlands to be flooded there. However, the water quality in portions of that area is going to be compromised by high salinity. In terms of reduction of flooded wetland habitat, the Sacramento Valley region is going to be hit the hardest. And unfortunately, that's the portion of the Central Valley that typically receives the highest waterfowl use. You and your dog are a team. Fuel is best in the field and in life with Purina Pro Plan Sport. Made for hardworking dogs of all ages, every sport formula starts with real meat as the number one ingredient and is specifically formulated to support strength and stamina. Try it today and see why ProPlan is the official dog food of Ducks Unlimited. Learn more at ProPlanSport.com. You mentioned something related to the the San Joaquin Valley where a lot of the, I think you said 78%, you're expecting 78% of the wetlands that normally would be would have water to in fact have some water this year but you mentioned uh, that some of that is likely to be delayed until december and i've heard mark talk about this before 
what's what's going on there? Is this a decision uh, on the part of the the private duck clubs, the wetland managers, to sort of hedge their bets and say, hey, I don't want to add. I don't want to add water. I have a limited allocation of water that's coming to me, and I have to be choosy right now on on when I'm going to put that on uh, on my wetlands. Is that what's happening? That's exactly what's happening. And you know, they're getting those club owners that are serviced by the Grassland Water District, which is the bulk of the clubs in the in the San Joaquin Valley. They are going to be allocated about a one and a half acre feet of water for every acre that they have. Okay, so if you put that on the landscape early, and it is generally very warm in the valley, you know, it can be that way all the way until November, say, you're going to have very high evaporative losses. And so many of those club owners have chosen to delay, basically delay their flood up and delay their opener, you know, until later in the year. And, and many of them aren't planning on having opening day, say, until December. But that also will coincide, you know, when peak waterfowl populations occur here. So instead of flooding excess ground early, um, they'll stagger that flood up. And, you know, we'll have, we should have sufficient habitat for birds there at the beginning. And then we'll also have a nice influx of, of new habitat coming on a little bit later as populations peak. This, the water that you meant, water allocation that you mentioned for those wetland managers, that's primarily and maybe exclusively surface water. Is that right? That's surface okay. water. Yeah. So, it, you know, those, those water districts or those private landowners or public wetland areas that have groundwater capability, you know, they will have that to supplement their supplies. And in the case of uh, when surface water is cut off, basically there's no surface water deliveries, even areas that you were able to flood up, you'll have to have some sort of maintenance flow to keep those uh, wetlands sustained. And that's going to have to come from groundwater. In Virginia, I have to imagine that there's some type of regulation of groundwater as well. I can't imagine there's any drop of water in California that's not regulated in some way. <laughs> uh, what is the, what are groundwater use regulations or policies look like out there? And what determines, I mean, obviously, if someone doesn't have a pump, they can't do that. But even for those people that have pump, what just what does the groundwater policy look like out there? Yeah, actually, um, the state of California has been for many years a little bit more lenient on groundwater than you would expect. But that, you know, that has changed and it is going to continue to change. There are, um, you know, the various aquifers in the state are classified um, as far as what kind of condition they, they are in. You know, are they in a state of critical overdraft, you know, overdraft, are they fine, whatever. And that does have an impact on where you're going to be able to pump. So if you are are in a critically overdrafted aquifer, you are not going to be able to exercise groundwater pumping and you're you're not going to have very productive wells in that situation. So we've seen, you know, and we see this in drought regularly, wells become less productive in many areas as you stress that aquifer and pull that water out of the ground, um, they become less productive. Yeah, so let's let's talk about kind of how this may impact waterfowl. I've asked Mark Petrie in the previous episode with he and Jeff that I've, I've mentioned to, to talk a bit about whether we're going to see, whether we would expect to see food shortages for waterfowl. Mark is, is like the czar of our bioenergetic modeling out west, and he has done incredible work trying to understand the, the availability of food resources in all different types of, of waterfowl habitats, and he can model the availability of those of those food resources based on different flooding scenarios. And so Mark talked in detail about that. And I think the take home there was, at least for the Central Valley, 
there's going to be a couple of things happening because of the drought in the Klamath as well as in the, the Great Salt Lake and the fact that those are two major pathways through which migrants come into California. We, we, might, we might see an early, earlier than normal. We would expect to see, quite frankly, an earlier than normal influx of migrants to, um, to California. But based on some of his, the modeling that he's able to do, kind of given what you described and what we understand about potential for even reduced, even in the face of reduced flooding of, of wetlands and, and harvested rice fields, Mark does not project there to be food shortages until like uh, maybe early January, sometime late winter. And there is an opportunity between now and then, actually, or as you get into winter, for California to, to enter the rainy season. Is that is that kind of the way you've heard him describe it? And is that making sense, what I described there? Yeah. I mean, let's talk a little bit about the rice situation. I'll, I'll mention, and I'm sure Mark already did mention it on this previous conversation with you, but I gave you sort of these numbers on on wetland habitat. But, you know, the rice base is... Um, it, it, we're going to see some major changes in that. So typically, about 540,000 acres of rice are planted. That's almost all in the Sacramento Valley. And about 340,000 acres, or 63%, are flooded post-harvest. And that post-harvest flooding is, is a great uh, habitat base for waterfowl. It gives them areas to feed, and it gives them areas to loaf. You know, they feed on the waste grain. They also feed on invertebrates in those areas. So this year... 25% less acreage of rice was planted to begin with. Okay, but we still had about 404,000 acres of rice put out on the landscape. However, this is where you're going to see the big change. Only about 17% of those acres are going to be flooded post-harvest. So that's about 80% less post-harvest flooded rice than we would normally see here. And, and that reduction in flooded post-harvest flooded rice is going to be disproportionately worse on the west side of the Sacramento Valley, meaning west of the Sacramento River. You're really going to see some changes there. They're only projecting about 6,800 acres of flooded rice fields are expected on that side of the valley. So huge change. So, you know, to tie that in to Mark's assessment of food abundance, we had a lot of rice planted as long as those fields are not worked um, too extensively, so in other words, the, the waste grain is there and farmers do not work the fields more extensively than they normal, normally would, the potential for food availability is still present. So, you know, some birds that dry field feed, it won't bother the geese a bit. Um, but some of our duck species like green winged teal and gadwall that don't typically feed in dry fields they're not going to be able to take advantage of that food resource. However, if we get those rains, you know, that we can hope for to be significant, say, in December and January, that can change the food availability situation in a hurry. You know, we get that sheet flooding all over the valley. It could open up a huge amount of food um, for waterfowl. Virginia, whenever you mentioned working the rice fields, you're talking about disking, right? Because they still, they're having to find alternative ways. If they don't have water to put on to help with the decomposition of the rice straw, they're having to find alternative ways to help incorporate and accelerate the decomposition of that rice straw. And that would be disking, right? 
Yeah, they need it would be something mechanical, right? So they need to get that rice straw post-harvest. They've got to get that rice straw to break down over the fall and winter so that when they come back in in the spring, they don't have that big biomass to have to deal with. And so flooding is a really effective way to do that. Obviously, it works for, for breaking down rice straw, and it certainly works for providing habitat, you know, for waterfowl and a substrate for the inverts that become really important food later on in the winter. Um, so yes, if you, you have to get rid of the straw one way or another, and if water is not available for decomposition, they typically would work um, more extensively from a mechanical standpoint, you know, disking, ripping, deep disking, multiple diskings to get that thing incorporated, get that straw incorporated in the soil so it breaks down better. And we've actually sent out a flyer uh, distributed to rice farmers throughout the valley. You know, we did this during the last drought too. It's just basically asking for their cooperation. You know, put your boards in the field. If you don't have water to flood your fields, please put your boards in when you're done harvesting. You know, so if we get significant rains, it'll capture that. And please don't work your fields any more extensively than you normally would. You know, and that'll 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 leave the table set if we get the rains and, and makes those areas more accessible. I want to talk about likely waterfowl response now, and this is where we wish, as I've said before, we we had a crystal ball, <laughs> and, but it's the question that everybody wants to know, and and so I think we can draw some some pretty simple conclusions, uh, projections based on what we know of these landscapes and how they're unlikely to change between now and when birds are arriving. And matter of fact, birds are already starting to arrive in the Central Valley. I've seen some pictures. Uh, and some reports of birds already starting to arrive. Uh, so we would expect perhaps an earlier than normal and larger number of birds arriving uh, arriving earlier than a typical year because of the drought in those other two regions. And But then once birds get there and they encounter this less wetland-rich landscape than, than what they might normally encounter, people are wondering, what are the birds going to do? Obviously, one thing that you could say is that if you have water, you're going to have birds. And if you, so if you have water earlier, whenever you have water, as long as the drought is persisting across the broader landscape, you're going to have birds. You're likely to have a really good year. But then the other thing is, well, all the birds can't pack into that same limited habitat base, at least we wouldn't expect. So maybe birds will move around more than they normally do. Maybe they'll exploit some of the coastal habitats more than they normally do. Maybe some will go to Mexico. We just, we don't have a good feel on some of those things, but is is that, what do you think, if, as you've thought about this, I know you're a hunter, I know these things are working through your mind, what would you expect uh, in, in when you talk to people? Yeah, I would expect some accelerated migration, and if you look at the conditions, you know, in the Intermountain West, up in the Southern Oregon, Northeast California, real important fall staging habitat, those conditions are terrible. They're absolutely terrible. Basically, there is no habitat up there. Those birds are going to come on down because they have nothing to hold them there for any period of time. So I would expect somewhat of an accelerated migration. And we saw some of that last year. We And, you know, that was a very dry year. And uh, we saw, you know, by the opener of waterfowl season in the latter part of October, we saw a good number of green wing too and a good number of widgeon. Those birds are always here in some numbers by the opener. But I was surprised by the flocks of widgeon that I saw. It wasn't one or two birds, it was good sized groups of birds. And I, you know, I think that had to do with the conditions up north being poor. So I would expect to see some of the same this year. And I would expect um 
areas that have more of a state, I'll say a stable wetland base like the Delta and the Sassoon Marsh area. Again, that, that water's brackish and it's been compromised this year with high salinities, but you do have more of a stable wetland base. And I expect, you know, birds will move around and try to take advantage of that. And, you know, if we have rain events and you spread water on the landscape, the birds will follow the water. They always do that, um, you know, and, and, there, there isn't going to be too many places where they can alternately go here in the valley. You know, as you say, where there's water, there's going to be birds. But I think the thing we really need to be most concerned about, um, rather than food shortages, it's crowding of birds and the potential disease outbreaks. I would say that's a much more significant concern than food sh shortages. Less habitat will be available. The birds will concentrate in higher densities in the flooded areas that are present, and that can be exacerbated by hunting pressure. Um, dense concentrations of birds combined with temperature drops around December can set up conditions that are ripe for an outbreak of avian cholera. And we saw this situation during the previous drought. I remember in December of 2015, Gray Lodge Wildlife Area in particular, that's um, up in the Butte Basin portion of the valley, and other public wildlife areas were reporting extremely dense concentration of birds. Um, and, they, and they had these concentrations for quite a while, and there was a great deal of concern that it was only a matter of time until there'd be a major outbreak of avian cholera. And then the rains came in the nick of time, and they were substantial rains. And we had widespread sheet flooding, and the birds followed the new water, and they spread out in the valley, and we never did get that disease outbreak. So I think we need to hope for something similar um, to that this year. You know, you get the significant rainfall, it can change things in a hurry. There are a half dozen questions I could ask you about what we've just talked about here, but I'm going to have to move on here. Uh, we'll come back. Maybe we can connect with you later in the year to see how things are unfolding, especially, well, if, if, the, if the drought persists, if we don't get rain. And then also, even if we do get rain, it'd be interesting to talk with you and see how those two things are. Uh, one of those is likely to happen. Uh, so uh, we'll reconnect with you and talk about some of those issues in a bit more detail. But I want to move on now and talk about the hunter aspect of this because it is going to affect hunters. It's going to affect the places that they that that are available to them. Some individuals that have private leases on uh, on harvested rice fields, winter flooded harvested rice fields, they're not going to have water in their fields. Talk about the the effects of this drought and a reduced habitat base from a waterfowl hunter perspective. And, and that even extends to what we might expect or what you're hearing with regard to reduced capacities or any kind of decisions that public land managers are making. Yeah, the drought is going to impact waterfowl hunting opportunities on both public and private lands. You know, fall water delivery for wetlands and rice fields is going to be much lower than normal. So you're going to have less flooded habitat available for waterfowl and therefore fewer hunting opportunities. Hunter quotas are going to be reduced on most of the public hunt areas, particularly early on in the season because of less flooded habitat available. Um, and then as you touched on, many hunters that normally lease rice blinds are going to have to find alternate places to hunt ducks, at least. It's a good time to be a goose hunter. Um, but the demand for public hunting already exceeds the supply of public hunting ground that's available. So that's just going to get worse. You know, I've, I've talked to some people, you know, who said, well, we, you know, we won't have water on our rice blind this year. We'll just go to the refuges. 
Well, <laughs> you know, we already have a situation where um, it's extremely difficult to draw a hunting reservation on some of the most popular hunt areas, you know, like Delava National Wildlife Refuge and Upper Butte Basin's Little Dry Creek Unit. That situation is going to get worse this season. Um, we should not expect that any specific units that are normally open to hunting are going to be closed to hunting and managed as sanctuaries. If those areas are closed to hunting, it'll be because there's not sufficient water available to flood them up. We have put together a drought blog on our Western Region website. It's duwestblog.org. And that was written specifically to inform hunters of the expected impacts of the drought on their public hunting opportunities. And it provides information on many of the public hunting areas and the various waterfowl hunt zones in the state. Um, those conditions are evolving. So we'll be updating that blog probably up until the waterfowl opener in the Central Valley as new information becomes available. Um, and then the California Department of Fish and Wildlife is planning on doing a, a press release closer to the opener, you know, when they have some of this stops uh, evolving and they have some more reliable information about hunter quotas and acreages that are flooded and all that. So trying to get the word out to hunters. But yeah, you expect a very different landscape and, and very different opportunities, particularly early in the season. Yeah. I encourage hunters to do exactly as you're talking about there, Virginia. Um, look for information, stay up to date on information, probably more so than you would in a normal year. You're going to want to know what's happening and, and what the quotas are and how they're changing and what the changing water levels are, availability of water in some of these areas. So yeah, make sure you do your homework before you, um, before you get out there and, and, and end up somewhere where you're not going to have an opportunity. So as we, as we transition here to a, to a closeout, I, I think we have a good opportunity to talk about some of Ducks Unlimited's conservation efforts. And, and we'll have you back for a more holistic view of DU conservation work and conservation priorities within the Central Valley, sort of over, over normal years and just sort of what we do on a normal basis. But in particular for this year, you spoke about some of the communication, enhanced communication that we're doing for hunters and for, for some of our supporters with regard to the drought and its effects on waterfowl, wetlands, and then hunters. But what other activities or, uh, or efforts are we engaging in right now that are noteworthy and that we need to make our people aware of? We're involved in several activities that are specifically related to the drought. Um, we're working with the California Rice Commission and several other conservation organizations on a program uh, to provide basically one-time financial relief for landowners that have um, the ability to pump groundwater to, uh, to flood both rice fields and wetlands that they would not otherwise be able to flood and maintain this fall and winter, you know, due to cost constraints. So the rice field portion of that program is currently available to growers um, and the wetland portion of the program will be available to landowners later this month. We're participating in a wetland manager's interagency drought group and other drought planning venues that collectively seek to understand the water situation as it evolves and determine how, when to apply the limited water that's available to best benefit migratory birds. 
Um, we've learned a lot of lessons over previous droughts. That five-year drought really taught us a lot of lessons about uh, collaboration and how to make adjustments to water management to get the biggest bang for our buck with the limited water that's available. And we also remain very active in advocating for policies and funding that support waterfowl, wetlands, and hunting opportunities. Specific on-the-ground kind of activities, you know, a major focus of our work in the Central Valley has been, and it'll continue to be, on large-scale water conveyance infrastructure improvements to increase water use efficiency and habitat management capabilities on both public and private lands. You know, this type of work maximizes the habitat quantity and quality with the limited water that's available, and it improves drought resilience. Virginia, where can people learn more about uh, about those two programs, or I guess the, the program that you led off with, the one that's offering assistance with the one-time groundwater pumping? That is going to be posted on the California it's California Rice Commission's Foundation, which is the California Water Bird Foundation website. And that's where the, uh, the application will be. Information will be on the program. Again, the rice program is already up on that website. The wetlands program will be coming up here later this month. And, and both information on that will be available on the website as well as the application. And then we are in the process of developing um, some outreach materials, a flyer that will be sent out uh, to wetland owners here shortly, kind of announcing that wetland uh, groundwater relief program and how to go about applying for it. Virginia, at the outset, you mentioned that periodic drought is is a normal occurrence in the Central Valley. It's a normal occurrence out West. One of the concerns, however, I've heard voiced is, and a question I've heard is, what if, are, are we seeing this becoming a new normal? Are we, are, are we seeing patterns of reduced snowpack? Um, what happens if this does become a new normal. What do you say to those type of questions, given your understanding of the system, how things are changing? What uh, what can you tell people in, in that regard? Well, I, I certainly have seen things change, you know, in my lifetime, in my career in the Valley. Um, climate has changed, weather patterns have changed, and it's made a difference. And what we're typically seeing out here, you know, in a system that I described before, you know, that is based on capturing rainfall and mostly snowmelt, you know, in the higher elevations, storing that water and then using it throughout the dry season, that's based on a good snowpack and good runoff from the snowpack. And what we've been seeing, you know, in recent years is rather than getting good snows, say, in the winter, you know, in December, January, February, when it's cold, uh, we're seeing a lot of our, our rain in the valley and some of our snows in the Sierras come down later in the year. It's a late winter, early spring thing. And what happens with the, you know, the snowpack when that happens in spring versus the winter, um, it doesn't last. You know, we don't have that giant sponge, if you will, that, you know, releases water that can easily be captured. You get more of this episodic, you know, very wet snow in the late winter, early spring, and that runs off faster than it can be captured. It doesn't, you know, it doesn't re, uh, recharge our storage reservoirs like we need it to. So we've seen a change, you know, in when our precip is coming, and we've seen a change in more of it coming as rain versus snow. And I think, you know, that that is likely to continue, you know, based on on predictions that we've all heard. 
So I think it really drives home the importance of ensuring sufficient water supplies for both wetlands and waterfowl-friendly agricultural lands, making the best use of the water that's available, and then continuing to work for policies that accomplish that and secure, you know, sufficient funding streams for wetland conservation. Yeah, I think all of that is a great point, and I'm glad you provided some of those, some of that backdrop, some of that some of your perspective on on what we've seen there. And it's not restricted to the Central Valley. It's not restricted to the Pacific Flyway. We're having conversations in the Central and Mississippi and Atlantic Flyway about how things may be a bit different, maybe changing from what they were 30 or 40 years ago. And so I think the, the overarching message is that just as birds are adapting to changing landscapes, to changing weather patterns, to changing timing of water availability, Hunters need to kind of put ourselves in a mindset of being willing to uh, to adapt as well to some of those changes as best we can. We don't live in a static world. We never have. And one of our messages is that, hey, birds are adaptive. That's what gives us some hope, gives us a lot of hope and optimism about the sustainability of waterfowl populations is they are highly mobile, highly adaptive. They have evolved amid constantly changing landscapes, climate conditions, and they are incredibly resilient, and they will continue to be so as long as we can provide the habitats that they need and to take advantage of whatever changing um, climatic patterns may occur. But then we as users and hunters and supporters can also have to be willing to get in that mindset of learning how to adapt, observe what's happening, and just prepare ourselves for a few different things occasionally. Does that does that sound about right? Yeah, it does, you know. And it, and if you're a hunter, that's part of the fun of it, right? If you want to be a good hunter, you have to learn and you have to adapt and you have to pay attention to what the birds are doing and if you adapt to it um, and understand how to how to hunt under different conditions in different places, etc., your success will be greater. Virginia, this has been a very fun, well, it's it's been a it's been a fun conversation. It's 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 been an educational conversation for sure, but it's been fun catching up with you and hearing about the knowledge that you have on how things are unfolding there, but also just your historical knowledge of the Central Valley, its habitats, its waterfowl populations, and its importance to our, our Ducks Unlimited supporters and our, our hunters as well. Any closing comments here before we, uh, before we wrap up? Yeah, I'd say the drought reminds us of why we need to double down on our conservation efforts in the Central Valley. We have to build resiliency in our habitat base to weather these tough times. You spoke to this, Mike, you know, waterfowl are built to adapt to changing conditions and to take advantage of good conditions when they occur. But we have to maintain a sufficient habitat base on the wintering, the migration, and the breeding areas so that the birds can take advantage of those habitat conditions when the good conditions arrive. You have to maintain the habitat base. And so I say we need to double down and keep keep making every effort we can, you know, to continue de-use conservation work in all these key areas. Well, Virginia, I know I speak for all of our members and our supporters in thanking you for the work that you do for Ducks Unlimited out in the Western region, as well as all of your staff that are out there on the ground doing the legwork day in and, and day out. And thank you for taking your time to join us today. 
for sharing these insights. And like I said, we'll try to reconnect with you or one of your colleagues here as we get farther into into the fall and winter to see how things are shaping up. So thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. A special thanks to our guest on today's episode, Virginia Getz, Ducks Unlimited's Director of Conservation Programs for California, Nevada, Hawaii, and Arizona. As always, we thank our producer, Clay Baird, sitting in today on this episode for the great work that he does getting these podcasts out to you. And to you, the listener, we thank you for your time and we thank you for your support, passion, and commitment to wetlands and waterfowl conservation. Thank you for listening to this episode of the DU Podcast. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to the show. And visit www.ducks.org slash DU Podcast for resources based on today's topics, as well as access to more episodes. Opinions expressed by guests do not necessarily reflect those of Ducks Unlimited. Until next time, stay tuned to the Ducks. You and your dog are a team. Fuel is best in the field and in life with Purina Pro Plan Sport. Made for hardworking dogs of all ages, every sport formula starts with real meat as the number one ingredient and is specifically formulated to support strength and stamina. Try it today and see why ProPlan is the official dog food of Ducks Unlimited. Learn more at ProPlanSport.com.